0: It's January at Monticello, typically our coldest month of the year, but the mountaintop has a stark beauty. When you stroll around the gardens and grounds, it feels quiet and contemplative. But we're actually doing a lot of work inside right now in our greenhouses, and that's what we're going to talk about today. This is A Rich Spot of Earth, a podcast about gardening and the natural world. I'm Michael Tricomi, manager and curator of historic gardens at Monticello. Thomas Jefferson's home in Albemarle County, Virginia. In the 18th century, freestanding greenhouses, also called Orangeries, became fashionable in Europe, and Jefferson saw quite a few while traveling in Britain and France. In America, they were less common, but Jefferson's friend, William Hamilton, had an enormous greenhouse at his home near Philadelphia. He also had several hothouses, or heated greenhouses, filled with unusual plants he collected from around the world. Here's curator of plants Peggy Cornett and flower gardener Debbie Donnelly discussing Jefferson's
1: greenhouse. Jefferson had an interest in growing plants that needed protection or a greenhouse of sorts. As early as 1778, when he got an acacia plant, he was very interested in plants that would be grown in orangeries, such as what George Washington had at Mount Vernon. That one had an area behind a main back wall where you could have fires, a stovehouse, hothouse. It's a couple stories high, and it's quite sunny. People were forcing citrus trees to produce fruit, to ripen fruit, and also to grow fragrant plants. The acacia and the citrus have very fragrant flowers. It was a real luxury, like a gentleman farmer would be able to do that.
0: Jefferson sketched ideas for two different freestanding greenhouses, but neither one was ever built. Ultimately, he settled on something more modest, designing a small, glass-enclosed space attached to the main house. He called it the South Piazza.
1: The greenhouse that was built at Monticello was completed when Jefferson was retiring from the second term as president in 1809. The South Piazza is right next to Jefferson's Sanctum Sanctorum, next to his library, his study, and his bedchamber. So it was on the side of the house where Jefferson spent a lot of his time, and it connects to the South Wing, or the Terrace.
2: And it's amazing. It's unheeded, but we keep citrus and acacia out there year-round. There is a lemon and an acacia and a geranium. At one point we were monitoring the temperature and it would get below freezing in there, but they did
1: okay. Yeah, I think it might have been fine for Jefferson, but there were a few years where it, it was so cold that I think everything froze in the mm-hmm. greenhouse. It was down below zero. The, That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cold that when he was trying to write with his quill pen, the ink would freeze in the well. But in the later years, probably after 1816, the greenhouse appeared to be a storage space where Jefferson kept seeds, a seed cabinet and seed vials, and there was also a workbench that was used. And some of the last references to the greenhouse let us know that it was a place where Jefferson's many grandchildren played, and it was a place to sit and enjoy reading on a patio, more or less.
2: All the windows are triple-slash windows, so they can raise up. So in the summer, it's just a beautiful place to sit with the cross ventilation, and it's just really nice. Yeah,
1: you have to lift them up and prop them up with some bracing. Right, there's yeah. just sticks that
2: hold them up. Also in the winter, the sunrise out there is beautiful. The glass will have ice frozen on it, and yet the sunrise will come through the windows and melt the ice. Gives you this nice pink tinge. In
0: 1812, Jefferson received several shipments of South African bulbs that he may have planted in pots in the greenhouse.
1: His friendship with Bernard McMahon, a nurseryman and seedman in Philadelphia, gives us clues into plants that he was receiving that could have been grown in a greenhouse such as cape bulbs, which were plants that were just being introduced from South Africa. They're tender bulbs. Actually, we just put a chasmanthe in because it's getting ready to bloom. That was one of the South African plants. The foliage is sword-shaped, it's tall actually, and the flowers are orange and they're quite pretty
2: they're reddish orange but they are on long spikes and there'll be several flowers per spike and just nice bright green foliage it gets about four feet tall so i do put some bamboo or stakes just to support them because Mm -hmm. once they start really blooming they tend to (laughs) flop a bit but they're just beautiful it's
1: quite impressive the name chasm i think it's from the greek word for chasm because the flower is supposed to look like a gaping mouth.
2: It looks like a flower a hummingbird would love.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Latin name for that plant is Chasmanthi aethiopica. Jefferson didn't always record which plants survived, but if he had any success with his South African bulbs, it would have been with this species. It grows so abundantly, it's considered a weed in Southern California. Another South African plant that became popular in America in the early 1800s was the species geranium, meaning a geranium you'd find in the wild, the Latin name is Pelargonium inquinens, and it's a parent of our modern geraniums that are popular today.
1: Jefferson did possibly grow the geranium in the greenhouse. Jefferson kept a plant when he was president in his cabinet in the president's house, and when he was Returning to Monticello, his friend Margaret Bayard Smith requested that he leave her his plant. She was very lovingly wanting to have this plant as a remembrance of Jefferson, and he was embarrassed about it because it wasn't looking very good at the time. He said, I'm sure your fostering attentions will revive this plant. And he did take cuttings of that geranium back with him to Monticello. You know, the geraniums we grow today, usually they're big, double, Mm round-headed flower, and these species geraniums are just much simpler. Quite a nice orange-red color. And they also are quite a bit taller. Very lanky. Like I forgot about that. five feet
2: tall that looks like a tree with a geranium on top.
1: <laughs> but to keep it as a houseplant, you can just cut it back regularly. We've cut a lot of them back just recently.
2: Now they'll put out new growth and be yeah. nice and bushy again.
1: A lot of people think they need
2: full sun, but they actually, when they're out in the garden in the summer, Or in pots in the summer, they do appreciate a little shade
1: in the afternoon. And you grow them in the garden as well.
2: I do. I move them into the garden after danger frost. And then we dig them up before the frost hits and put them in pots. And they overwinter in the greenhouse. And then we put them back out there in the spring.
1: They're tough. You can let them get quite dry. And some people just practically... Let them go semi-dormant over the winter. I've heard of putting them in a brown
2: paper bag in the basement or root cellar and just let them sit there all winter. And then pot them up in the spring. Bring them them out. I haven't tried it, so.
1: I haven't tried that either, but I've heard that it does work. And the other thing I know when I used to take cuttings from them, that I would take the cutting and let it sit on the bench for a bit to callus off a bit before I stuck it into the rooting media. That seems to keep the root cutting itself from rotting at the base.
0: It can be hard to find species geranium today, but our Center for Historic Plants propagates and sells it. Now let's hear from some recent Monticello visitors.
3: I'm Chris, and I'm from Washington State, and it's been lovely walking around the grounds, impressed by the depth of knowledge of everybody involved. and. A lot of thoughtfulness about about the challenges different generations face and the difficult it is sometimes to face up to to those challenges.
0: We have two greenhouses at our Center for Historic Plants, where we propagate plants for sale. And we also have two greenhouses on the mountaintop, where we grow plants for the historic flower and vegetable gardens. Horticulturist Robert Dowell joined Peggy and Debbie to talk about greenhouse propagation.
3: Our primary greenhouse, the ambient temperature in there is between 70 and 80 degrees. And the main goal is to propagate cuttings and to give a good germination environment for seeds. And so there's about 16 movable benches in the greenhouse that we can get between and water and tend the plants as we need to. And Six of those benches have bottom heat coils because a lot of species that germinate from seed need a specific temperature to germinate at, usually somewhere between 70 and 80 degrees. And they're just rubber coils fed with a hot water heater to keep that temperature up.
2: If you're going to try and propagate your own seeds at home, I highly recommend purchasing a heat mat. They're not that expensive and it just, that's what some seeds want and need. And the germination percentage is just huge.
1: And the nice thing too is you don't have to keep the ambient temperature so high, which is better because the higher you, you put the temperature, the more chances you have for insects develop right. and that sort of thing.
2: We also put plastic covers over our flats when we first sow the seeds. It gives them more moisture, more of a little mini greenhouse it's effect. like a mini greenhouse, yeah. So that helps a lot. Now you have to be careful because they can get too wet and start molding and rotting. But there's a lot of little tricks to growing seeds to be successful with it. But it's not hard. You just have to read up a little bit about it before you do it because it's fun.
3: Yeah, and each species has a different personality to tap into to find out how to propagate it. Like Debbie was saying, some don't need that cold period and they can just go right on the heat. Whereas... A lot of seeds need three months of a stratification period where basically you're simulating winter. So at CHP, we'll have flats sown that go in our walk-in cooler where it's kept at 34 degrees or so. And they might sit there for two or three months and then we'll pull them out and put them in the greenhouse and give them bottom
1: heat.
2: And some seeds, even the outside coating is so hard that it needs to be nicked a little bit. Yeah,
1: or a file or a nick it, yeah. Sand it or Hot water whatever, so, so. sometimes too, yep.
2: Yep, soaking, Many, soaking overnight is good for right, a lot of things.
1: Right.
3: And exposure to light. I think the general rule is the smaller the seed, the closer to the surface of the media it needs to be. So if the seed looks like dust, it basically needs to sit on the top of the soil, whereas if it's an acorn, it can go probably four inches down.
2: So it does pay to look up and... Understand what the seed wants before you try and propagate it.
0: You need to think about watering in soil or media
3: as well. At CHP, they have an overhead mist system. The minute you take a a leafy cutting of a plant and you want to propagate it, it's a race against the clock before that cutting dries out. And so the intermittent mist system, we can dial whatever frequency we want, and that'll give it that steady stream of mist to help it stay alive until it can set roots out.
2: Make roots. And another thing we do, we have big trays of water. So they absorb the water from the bottom up. If you're overhead watering, even if it's a fine mist, you can just place the seed. And some seeds like to sit right on top of the soil. Some like to go down a quarter of an inch. Some like to go an eighth. It just depends. And so a seed that is sown right on the top, if you're overhead watering it, it's going to move it around and that also and,
1: compresses it sometimes too and so it's better to soak it up from the right from underneath
2: and from then the you get into your potting soils some are better <laughs> than others as far as absorbing water whereas other types readily absorb the water leave it in there an hour, it's ready to go out and get on the mat.
1: CHP, you're switching some of your media, which is interesting. Yeah,
3: We've had problems in the past where our media just wasn't coarse enough. And so like you were saying, Peggy, over time, overhead watering compresses the media, Mm -hmm. and that can become a problem. So anytime you can increase the amount of coarse material in your media, like perlite is the standard used in the industry, but we're trying to move away from perlite if we can. We've used rice holes in the past, and that's been a good substitute for filling that porosity need. And some seeds are more tolerant of yuckier soils than others. Now, some species are very tolerant to soil type and some are very specific about it. So it's just knowing what species you're growing is the best thing you can do. And
2: that's also another point to make is when you're doing these seeds, keep up your journal so that for next year, this didn't work too well or this worked great, I'll do it again. It's just so easy to forget what worked and what didn't
0: we have a cooler greenhouse as well.
3: Our second greenhouse, that's gonna be between 30 and 40 degrees. And the goal with that greenhouse is to allow us to overwinter more tender, woody stock. So things like figs, we're gonna start growing pomegranates too. We also have rose cuttings. Roses are fully hardy, but when you have recently rooted cuttings that are very small in small pots they're not suited to overwinter outside so it's best to have them in a protected environment that's cold enough to stimulate winter but not so cold that they get freezing and not so warm that they try and actively grow and as we move towards spring and the days get longer and warmer we'll let that house gradually warm up on its own and then things can break bud and be a little bit ahead of the season
1: You mentioned you were taking fig cuttings, and that's a fun topic.
3: Yeah. CHP, usually between Thanksgiving and New Year's, is fig cutting season. They're hardwood cuttings, so they'll be leafless. We'll propagate three varieties of figs, the green ischia, the Marseille, and the brown turkey. We'll harvest branches that are about, I want to say, like a Sharpie permanent marker, like about that diameter. And we'll take branches that are three, four feet long, and we'll cut those into sections about six or eight inches long. And it will have several nodes. And those nodes are the old growing points where there were leaves. And from each of those nodes is the potential for a new branch to form. So you just have a bare stick, no roots on it. And we'll put those into a potting media, which is usually very much on the coarse side. So we like to use a perlite, vermiculite mix. Figs are pretty adaptable, but I try to avoid using too much peat because peat tends to hold a lot of moisture. And so we'll put these sticks basically in this media and put those on bottom heat. And then they will root just like that. Some cuttings are very finicky and you have to Get the right hormone chemistry for them and wait six months and you might get half of them to root. But Mm -hmm. figs are not like that at all. They're extremely easy. The critical thing with figs is the bottom heat. It really makes a difference.
2: And so when you pot them up, you're potting them vertically.
3: Yeah. You have to make sure that the part of that cutting that was closer to the base of the plant is the bottom. If you put the cutting upside down, the cutting might still root but it will just be very confused and it will take a very long time for it to grow the right way. The way I avoid confusion is I'll cut the bottom at a sharp slant and the top at a shallow slant. So the very pointy end is the down end. Figs are very interesting. They have a hollow pith which can actually rot. And so that can compromise the health of your cutting. And so what we do is we dip the top part in like a hot wax, just like the first inch or two of the cutting. And that just helps provide a little cap. A seal, Mm -hmm. exactly, so that water can roll off it. But the wax is biodegradable, so in a few months it just dissolves. The fig cuttings, they're dormant hardwoods with no leaves, so they actually don't need that mist right away. We won't start introducing the mist until they start leafing out.
2: So when will they leaf out?
3: Usually, in a couple weeks, the buds will start to break, and it's always interesting because I have to watch them. They'll actually have tiny little figs trying to form on the cutting, and I have to pinch those off because I want the energy of the cutting to go into roots and leaves, not figs. Fig is a huge genus. There's like 600 species of fig out there, and so we just grow the one common edible fig, but there's all sorts of tropical, subtropical figs.
1: Jefferson, apparently he did send a fig back from France, the Marseille fig, and it was his favorite fig. And the Marseille is a white-fleshed fig. They're a very juicy fig. It never gets dark and brown, like a brown turkey. So that was one of his favorites.
3: And that's true with the green ischia variety we also grow. It ripens a greenish yellow. But the yellow. inside does get red, though, it, Yeah, it? yeah. The, the inside of the green ischia does turn like a, sometimes a deep burgundy. It's pretty, But, but, yeah. but the outside stays a green. chartreuse. Yeah,
1: and of course, the way you know a fig is ripe is because it gets soft. You don't want to eat a green fig. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. Right, yeah. The figs were being grown in an area of Monticello that Jefferson called the submural beds, which were beds below the vegetable garden wall so that they could be more protected. So they were planted right up against the stone wall that was five to six feet tall.
3: They can put on amazing growth, too. Our figs at CHP can almost die to the ground some years, and they'll be seven feet tall by the end of August.
1: It's incredible, yeah. But if they do overwinter with small figs on them, sometimes those figs will ripen early, like in June. They call them a June fig, and they can be really big, and it's totally in a different time period from when the fall fruits ripen.
0: Jefferson's passion for figs helped promote this fruit in Virginia and throughout the United States. That's it for our January episode of A Rich Spot of Earth. Thanks for joining us. Stay warm and happy gardening.